Today's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The demand to keep talking about the Sabbath was so high that we just had to return to it for one more week. And uh, No, I'm just kidding. I think, I think mostly the demand was to get back to the Gospel of John. But uh, there's one, one lingering question about the Sabbath that we're going to answer today. At least we're going to try to answer. And um, I'm going to hopefully give some clarifying remarks at the beginning that uh, deal with what we've looked at the last two Sundays. Um, as you know, we've, we were launched into this discussion about the Lord's Day and the Sabbath and how they relate to one another um, from John chapter 5, where we see Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath, performing a miracle on the Sabbath, and then commanding that man to take up his mat and start walking around and the Jews charged him with breaking the Sabbath, and we were examining the question, was it true that Jesus actually broke the Sabbath? Was he guilty of breaking the Sabbath? And our answer to that was no, he was not guilty of breaking the Sabbath, otherwise he would no longer be our sinless Savior. It is a command of his Father that the Sabbath be honored and kept. What we see in Jesus is that he was keeping the true intention of the Sabbath. He was not breaking it. And uh, from that, we had multiple questions that arose from, from people within the congregation about the relationship between the Lord's Day and the Sabbath, or you could think of it as the relationship between the Christian and the idea of the Sabbath day. How do those two things relate? That's what we've been looking at the last two weeks. Today is hopefully going to be the last day, and then we will get back to John chapter 5, and, uh, and some of you can rejoice and be at ease in light of that. You can rest in light of that, right? All right, why don't we pray, and then we will, we will get into the message today. Father, thank you for uh, the opportunity that we have to gather together as your people. And Lord, though I did not know a few of those songs that we were singing, the truths that were being communicated in them were glorious. And... I do pray, Lord, that for all of us, we would know the blessing and the joy of being nearer to you throughout all of our days until that day of glory, that eternal Sabbath day that you've already entered into, Lord. You've already gone ahead of us into that eternal day, our Lord Jesus. And we look forward to that day when we will join you. And, and until that day happens, when you call us home or... You return and catch us up. Uh, either way, Lord, every week we celebrate the Lord's Day as a reminder that we are one week closer to the day of glory that's coming. Lord, we long for that day and we look to you in hope and in confident expectation that because of Christ's blood, Father, because of his righteousness, because of his sacrifice on our behalf, because of his resurrection, his ascension, and the promise of his return, we can look forward to that day with joy, knowing that we will be delivered from the wrath of God that is coming. Lord, we, we love you. We want to love you more. In our hearts, we truly do honor you. But 
we see so many ways this past week that we did not live up to our spirit birth desires. We didn't honor you this week the way we should have, Lord. And, and many of those sins are fresh in our minds. Some of them have passed out of our minds. But Lord, we need your forgiveness nonetheless. And we need to confess to you in hope that if we confess our sins to you, you are faithful and you are just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, that's our, that's our hope because that's your promise. So Lord, in all the ways we have not loved you the way we ought to love you this past week, we pray that you would forgive us. We acknowledge our guilt before you. We ask for your cleansing, Lord. In hope, in the, in the blood of Christ, we know that there is, there is no sin that can keep us from fellowship with you in his name. So Lord, would you please in his name cleanse us and renew us in our hope in Christ. Lord, we pray for those who are traveling, those who aren't with us this morning. Would you bless them wherever they are? Meet them, encourage them, strengthen them in the faith and bring them back safely to us. Lord, we're thankful that you've brought uh, those who were traveling back to us safely. We thank you for the DeCaro family. Lord, we praise you that you gave them a time away with other family members in other parts of the country, and we're so thankful to see them here this morning. Lord, we ask that you would be with us and that you would allow your presence to be known among us in a very uh, tangible, very real way. May we know the fellowship of the Spirit together this morning as, as one body. Father, we gather together in, in, in your name, and we ask for you to be with us in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Well, like I said, today is uh, Sabbath Questions Part 3, and you can go look at Parts 1 and 2 on our website if you want to listen to those and you haven't heard them yet. But uh, for the last couple of weeks, we've been... Uh, in entering into this brief discussion of the Sabbath and its relation to the Lord's Day. And today, the last question that we're going to look at, at least for now, until this topic is brought up again. Um, the last question we're going to look at is, what about Christians who have to work on the Lord's Day? Are they sinning against God by working on a Sunday? Or are they dishonoring the Lord by working on the Lord's Day? That's what we're going to seek to answer today in the message, but before we do that, I want to clarify a few things that I've said regarding the relationship between the Lord's Day and the Sabbath day. And I need to apologize once again, today is another day of heavy teaching, and there's really nothing I can do to get around that, okay? Yeah, amen. Idra, I, I always love your support, brother. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when I doubt that I have anyone's support in this room, I know I can't doubt in relation to you. You always support me. And, uh, and I love you. I love you so much. And uh, maybe, maybe some others should take a, take a lesson. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's a, heavy, it's a heavy teaching time. And I just, you know, wake up a little bit. If you need to go get another cup of coffee to, to wake up, go get that cup of coffee. And just be awake and, and attentive for, for today's message. I'm hoping it's going to be helpful. And, and ironing out some of the lingering questions uh, relating to the things we've already seen. So let me start with an acknowledgement. Okay, so I've got three things I want to clarify. Number one, let me start with an acknowledgement. Some, some may feel troubled 
over the idea of calling the Lord's Day a Sabbath day for Christians. Okay, some people may be troubled about that. I'll be honest, I, I really don't care whether you call the Lord's Day a Sabbath day or not. That, that does not trouble me at all, whether or not you call it the Lord's Day Sabbath or simply Sunday or the Lord's Day. It doesn't bother me. What I do care about is that we all view the Lord's Day the way that God wants us to view the Lord's Day and that we use the Lord's Day the way God wants us to use it, right? I don't care what you call it. I just want to make sure that we all understand how we should view it and how we should use it. Right? For most Christians in the West, we don't understand the concept of using the means of grace that God gives to us. We have a far more passive understanding of what it means to live the Christian life. We, we let go and we let God. God just carries us along. That's not biblical. I hope you recognize that. What God has given us by his grace are means of walking in fellowship with him. And as we in faith use those means, the Lord draws near and blesses us. He preserves us by the means of his grace, by his spirit and his word working in us to cause us to do and to be, uh, cause us to do that which is pleasing in his sight. That's how the Lord works. So we have far too, of a, far too passive of an understanding of what it means to live the Christian life. Fellowshipping together with Christ's people on the Lord's day is one of those means of grace that he's given us. Right. So we want to make sure that we're understanding how the Lord wants us to view this day and how he wants us to use it. Because if we're not viewing it rightly and we're not using it rightly, then we're cutting ourselves off from spiritual nourishment and strength that we desperately need in order to live faithful lives for Jesus Christ. So let's start with this. And we've already seen this. I just want to reiterate it, okay? It is a fact, okay? It is a fact that in the pages of the New Testament we find Christians doing on the first day of the week what Jews would only have done on the seventh day of the week. It is a fact, I'm going to say it again. It is a fact that we find Christians in the New Testament doing on the first day of the week what Jews and Israelites would only have done on the seventh day of the week. And what would be the seventh day of the week for the Jew? The Sabbath. We find Christians doing on the first day of the week Sabbath activities that would only have been done on the seventh day of the week in Israel. We've already looked at this. Acts 20, verse 7. It's what was read this morning. Jesus' disciples gathered together on which day of the week? First day. Remember that word there, right? The Greek word, it's the same word from which we get the word synagogue. So the Jews, the Israelites, when they would meet together in their specific localities, as it says in Leviticus 23, verse 3, that they would, they would uh, have a, a solemn assembly. When they would gather together in their solemn assemblies in their localities, eventually those gatherings were called the synagogue. They would go to synagogue together, 
right? They would gather together as the people of God. Well, that's what the disciples are here doing in Acts 20, verse 7. And they're not synagoguing on the seventh day of the week. They're synagoguing on the first day. What else is involved in this synagoguing, this gathering together? Well, what are they doing? They're gathering together for a purpose. And what is that purpose? It's to break bread. And we've looked at what that's talking about. That's not just talking about sharing a meal together. That's talking about the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. That's talking about having communion together, fellowship together at the table of the Lord. Now, this is a purpose statement. They gathered together for the purpose of celebrating at the Lord's table. That's really significant. What happened in Israel whenever they would gather together on the Sabbaths? What kind of meal would they share? Or, or maybe on the other Sabbath feasts that were instituted under the Old Covenant, what kind of meals would they share together? They would share together meals like the Passover, right? They would share the meal of the sacrifices that were being offered unto the Lord for the sake of their sins, their guilt offerings, their, their sin offerings, their uh, peace offerings. There were these feasts that were held. The Sabbath day under the Old Covenant was a feast day. And here we have in the New Covenant, the New Covenant feast being celebrated on which day of the week? First day of the week, the Lord's Day. So you have the fulfillment of what was being pictured under the Old Covenant Sabbath now in the New Covenant being taking place on the first day of the week. What about, uh, what's, what's the other activity that we see going on there on the first day of the week? We find Paul doing what? He's preaching. And he's preaching a lengthy message, right? He extends his message all the way until midnight. Then, after a kid dies, by God's grace, he's raised from the dead. And Paul continues to preach to them the truth of the gospel until sunrise. It's like I, I've said this before, Duncan Campbell, in revival, time does not exist. You don't care about how long the message is when the Spirit of God is working in your heart. You don't care about how long the church service goes or how many songs we sing or whether we know them or not or whether they're our favorite kinds of songs or not. You don't care about any of that when the Spirit of God is enlivening your heart. Now that's just a parenthesis there. But we find, we find them gathering together as, as disciples of God in Christ's name. We find them celebrating at the Lord's table. We find them devoting themselves to the preaching of the word. Acts 15, it tells us that in the synagogue, every single Sabbath day, Moses was read and preached. That same activity is what we find the disciples doing here in Acts chapter 20. Now, my point in, in rehashing that, going back through that, is simply to say that it is not a coincidence that Acts chapter 20, verse 7 is in the Bible. It's not just happenstance. That verse just happens to be in the Bible. That, that's not the way it is. The Holy Spirit, if we believe in the inspiration and the infallibility of the Scriptures, we believe that the Holy Spirit has a purpose in putting this verse in the Bible. What is that purpose? Especially placing it within the context of a book that is giving us descriptions and, and, and unfolding before us a picture of what first century Christianity looked like. What is the Spirit's purpose in putting this verse in the book of Acts. It's obviously to inform us about the way that the early Christians viewed 
the first day of the week and how we should by extension. What this verse demonstrates is that in the life of the early church, now listen carefully, what this verse illustrates is that in the life of the early church, the principle of the Sabbath as a day of worship was being observed, not on the seventh day, but on the first day. Now, I say principle of the Sabbath because this is not a worship that is according to all the forms of Israel's Sabbath keeping. The death penalty was was not enforced by missing out on this meeting. It, It wasn't about regulating whether a person could have a fire in his dwelling place or whether he could go pick up sticks. No, it was redeeming the Sabbath day to its original intention which in the beginning in Genesis chapter 2 was about withdrawing from your normal everyday work in order to focus in a particular special way on worshiping God. That's what the Sabbath day was about in the very beginning. What Jesus has done in the church is he has liberated his disciples from all the trappings and the external forms that were placed upon God's people under the old covenant and he has set them free to observe the Sabbath according to its original design. And that original design is pointing to something greater than what is pictured on the first day. What is that? That's the eternal Sabbath that we're waiting for the Lord to bring. Right? That day that Revelation says, that the day when there's no more sun or moon. Because God in the Lamb is the light of God's people in the new heaven and new earth. You know what that's picturing there? If there's no sun and there's no moon, what does that mean? There's no day. It's ending. There's no end of the day. It's an eternal day. It's an eternal day of rest and fellowship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're waiting for. In every Lord's day, we are worshiping together as the people of Christ in anticipation of that day that's coming. So our, our fel- what does that mean for our fellowship time? That means that our fellowship time should, should look and taste something like what that eternal day is going to be like. Our fellowship with one another, it, it ought to have a flavor of the glory of eternity on it. Right? Because if that's where we're going for all eternity, if we're going to worship God, if we're going to see His, we're going to see his face is what Revelation 22 says. We are going to behold God face to face for all eternity. What what should then it be like whenever we gather together as the people of Christ now? It should be like us talking with one another and fellowshipping with one another with the grace that we have received all throughout the week and giving to one another a picture of what God is like in the fellowship and in the encouragement that we offer to one another. Strengthening each other in the grace of the gospel. That's what healthy church life is. Right? It's not just, again, it's, it's not the Lord's morning that we are observing on the Lord's day. It's the Lord's day. And what's it for? It's to point us and encourage us in, in the Lord. So all of that to say, I went longer on that than I intended, but all that to say is I don't care whether you call it a Lord's Day Sabbath or not. What I care about is that you recognize the sanctity of the Lord's day And that you honor the Lord on his day according to the pattern that is given to us in the New Testament. That's what I care about. Amen? All right. So that leads to a second clarification. Who decided that 
the first day of the week would be the new day of worship under the new covenant. Amen. Yeah. Don't get ahead of me. Let me build to that argument, okay? All right. Just undercut me. Yeah. Who decided that the Lord's Day would be the new day of worship under the new covenant? In many books and many commentaries, I have found the common idea to be that the apostles were the ones who decided that the first day of the week was going to be the new day of worship for the church. That the apostles of their own authority, of their own arbitrary will or, or thinking or whatever you want to put in there, however you want to understand it, that it was ultimately derived from the apostles saying, this is the day that the church is going to worship on. And I want to, I want to show you that I believe that that kind of argumentation is wrong. According to the evidence, what, what we see in the New Testament. Now, let me say something first, though. Even if it were true that the day of worship for the new covenant church was changed by the apostles to be the first day, even if that were true, it would still be fine. Because the apostles of Christ were sent to give the church not their own thoughts about how things were to run and operate, but to give the very commandments of Christ himself, right? That's, that's 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, I think it's verse 2. That the apostles come to give the commandments of the Lord Jesus himself to the church. So if it was ultimately, if we can only point to the apostles and say, that's where the first day, of, first day worship came from, we would still be okay. Because they were simply passing on to us the commandments of Jesus. However, when it comes to the day of worship for the church being the first day, it appears that it was not the apostles who decided that that would be the case. It appears in scripture that it was Christ himself. Thank you, Corbin. Yeah. In Luke 24, for example, you remember the situation with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They had that special encounter with Christ where in Luke 24, verse 27, the Lord began to, I love this word here, the Lord began to expound the scriptures to them. We believe at Oak Ridge Community Church in expositional preaching, right? That doesn't mean that we don't go off into, into doctrinal or thematic uh, uh, series like what we're doing right now on the Sabbath. But we believe in expositional preaching, bringing out of the text the main purpose and point and meaning of the text and applying that to our lives. Well, that's what Jesus is doing right here in Luke 24, 27 with these disciples. He's preaching to them, showing them that the message of the Old Testament culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That it's all about Jesus. That's what Jesus is teaching them. Everything is about me is what Jesus is showing them. Everything, by the way. And we can talk, that's a, that's a sermon in, in itself. But everything is about Christ. And then you see in verse 32 that as they're recollecting what they were experiencing as Christ was expounding the scriptures to them, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us when he opened the scriptures to teach us about it? Now, you believers in this room, you know what that's like when the Holy Spirit opens your heart and your mind to understand the true meaning of the scriptures. There's this burning in your heart. There's this zeal of your soul that rises to meet the Lord as he draws near to meet with you. In his word. That kind of fellowship is what we're all after on the Lord's Day, right? That's why we gather here together. We want fellowship with one another and with Christ like that. 
Then in verse 30, we see that we're, we find this familiar phrase where it says, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Where was the last place in the Gospel of Luke that we find that phrase? Anyone want to take a guess? Blessing it. He, broke, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to his disciples. Where do we find that language used in the Gospel of Luke? The Lord... Where, where the Lord's Supper was instituted, right? right. Uh, the, the Last Supper, as it's called, with the disciples. Jesus using that very language at the institution of the Lord's table. Here in, in Luke 24, he takes bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, he gives it to his disciples, and in the breaking of the bread, the disciples all of a sudden begin to realize who it is that they're dealing with. They see now that this person they've been talking with all afternoon, this one who is with them, explaining the Scriptures to them is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And then Jesus disappears, right? Let me ask you a question. What day did that kind of fellowship with Christ take place with these two disciples? Luke 24, 13, it tells us it was on the same day as the resurrection of Christ, which is what day of the week? First day, right? Now you jump over to John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, verse 19 tells us that Jesus also appeared to the rest of the apostles on that day. It was the first day of the week. However, the next time that Jesus appears to the apostles together is when he's coming to rebuke the doubting or the doubts of Thomas. Notice in John chapter 26. It says that it was eight days after the first time that he appeared to them, when the apostles were again gathered together, that's when the Lord appeared in their midst to deal with doubting Thomas. Now, if he met with them on the first time, which was the day of his resurrection, that's the first day of the week, eight days later would be what day? Including that day? Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday... Sunday. Sunday. The Lord Jesus chooses to meet with his apostles as they were purposefully gathered together once again on the first day of the week. Why did he do that? Why didn't Jesus meet with doubting Thomas on a Tuesday by himself? Why didn't he meet with the other apostles on the seventh day if that was the day of their corporate worship? Why choose the eighth day, the, the first day of the week, to meet with them. Do you think that maybe Jesus was teaching them something about the day that he was going to meet with them from now on in the new covenant? You know, every time Jesus appears to his apostles in his post-resurrection state, every time that there's a time frame mentioned, it's always mentioned to be on the first day of the week. Why is that? If Jesus wasn't showing his apostles that he himself had sanctified that day to be a day of special communion with him. I think it's a strong argument. So this is the only adequate explanation, by the way, for why there was never a debate in the early centuries of the church about which day of the week the church of Jesus Christ should meet on. There was never a single debate about when Christians should gather together to worship the Lord Jesus. It was always on the first day of the week. Why is that? Unless that day had been sanctified by the Lord. 
right, that leads to a third clarification, okay? You guys still with me? I'm trying to cruise through this. All right, because we got something else to get to, right? Third clarification. One more thing to clarify before we get to our question. I have said in this brief series that what I am presenting has been the view of the Lord's Day for the majority of 2,000 years of church history. Okay? And that's really important. We want to make sure that we're not only doing things properly, exegetically properly. What I mean by that is we want to make sure that our beliefs are always in line with the teaching of the scriptures, right? But we also want to make sure that we're not doing our own theology off in the woods with our own Bible by ourselves. We want to, we want to do theology in the context of church history because that gives us wisdom as we approach the scriptures, right? It doesn't mean that tradition is put on par with the, with the level of authority of scripture. It simply means we can learn from the Holy Spirit's work among his people that has taken place in the past, if it lines up with the scriptures, it gives us insight into how we should understand and think about certain things. I've said that the majority of church history for the last 2,000 years has held the Lord's day according to the view that I'm presenting. I want to show you that this is true by giving you a number of quotations from early church fathers. Okay? Now, just to qualify this, these quotations are, again, they are not on the same level of authority as the scriptures. I'm not treating them as if they are as authoritative as scripture. But what, I, what I'm trying to point out is that these quotations show us that in the days immediately following the apostles, the church has always viewed the Lord's Day as a special day of worship, a day that was only comparable to the seventh day Sabbath of the Old Covenant. You follow that? All right, for example, Justin Martyr. In his first apology, this is section 67, or chapter 67, if you will, written sometime between 155 and 157. He is in this work defending Christian practices against the, Ro or for the, the, the sake of the Roman emperor. So he's writing about Christian practices in order to defend Christian practices to the Roman emperor. And he says concerning Sunday, he says, Sunday is the day on which we hold our common assembly. Why is that? Because it is the first day on which God made the world. That's an interesting thought. Let me just connect that for a second. God began making the world on the first day of the week. Jesus began remaking the world on what day of the week? First day of the week. Old creation began on day one, new creation. New creation begins on day one, right? It's glorious. So we worship on Sunday. That's when we hold our common assembly, our, our gathering together as a church, because it's on the first day that God made the world, and Jesus Christ, our Savior, on that same day rose from the dead, right? So there you have... Christian practice clearly articulated as we meet for holy assembly on the first day of the week, Sunday. Now, some of you have also heard of the letter called the Didache. Uh, it's a little booklet, really. It's, it's a letter or a booklet that's giving instructions for Christian worship, probably written sometime around 100, around A.D. 100. In section 14 of the Didache, it says, And on the Lord's own day... Gather yourselves together, break bread, 
and give thanks, first confessing your transgressions, that your sacrifice, your sacrifice of worship, may be pure. Very interesting thought there. Chris, early Christians viewed the, the corporate gathering and the corporate worship of the church as a sacrifice being offered unto the Lord. I wonder how many of us view it that way. I won't, I won't, I won't dive into that one anymore, but notice it's on the Lord's own day that this person is commanding, whoever wrote this letter is commanding other believers to gather together to worship Christ. Now, what's really important about this reference is that the author of the Didache seems to have been a Jewish Christian who was writing instructions to Gentiles so that they would worship the Lord in accord with the way that the churches were worshiping the Lord in the land surrounding Jerusalem. So there's this instruction manual being handed out to Gentile believers from what clearly appears to be a, a Christian uh, Jew who wrote this, this letter. Now, so that means that contrary to what the Judaizers were telling the Gentiles to do, which is what Paul is dealing with in Colossians and in Romans and especially in Galatians, right? Those, those Sabbaths that Paul talks, we looked at Colossians 2, 16 and 17 last week. Those days, that was talking about the old covenant ceremonial practice of keeping the Sabbath. But here, somewhere around 100, you've got a Jewish Christian commanding Gentile believers to gather themselves together on the Lord's own day. Well, what day is the Lord's own day? It's the first day of the week. The Lord's day, Revelation 1.10, right? So that's very instructive for us. A third one, the Epistle of Barnabas, written sometime between AD 70 and, and really AD 131, 132. They, they gauge that date because of the, the reference to the first destruction of Jerusalem and the lack of a reference to the total destruction in like the 130s. So it's written sometime in between that time period. The Epistle of Barnabas, the author writes, it is not your present Sabbaths your Jewish Sabbaths. It is not your present Sabbaths that are acceptable to me, but the Sabbath which I have made, the beginning of the eighth day, which is the beginning of another world. What day is that talking about? It's about the Lord's day. And here, whoever this was that wrote the Epistle of Barnabas is clearly identifying the Lord's day with the Sabbath. But it's not your present Sabbaths, it's it's the new Sabbath that I have made. It's, it's the, the one that begins on the eighth day, which is the beginning of another world. Wherefore, also we keep the eighth day for rejoicing, in which also Jesus rose from the dead, having been manifested and ascended into heaven. Now, it's the, like I said, it's the comparison between the seventh day Sabbath and what the writer calls the eighth day that is so important to see here. That comparison means that even at this early date in church history, these two days were seen to be in some way corresponding to one another. Ignatius's letter to the Magnesians, try and speed this up a little bit, written around 100. Ignatius writes, if we are living until now according to Judaism, we confess that we have not received grace. But if they who walked in ancient customs came to a new hope, they would be no longer living for the Sabbath, that is the seventh day Jewish Sabbath, but for the Lord's day, on which day also our lives spring up through him and his death. So here you see the contrast between the Sabbaths, 
your Sabbaths, and the Lord's Day. They're being held up together as two things that have some level of correspondence to one another and yet are distinct. We gain clarity as church history moves on. Eusebius, in his commentary on Psalm 92, was written in the late 200s, he said, if um, the word, talking about Jesus Christ, the word has exchanged and transferred the feast of the Sabbath to the Lord's Day. Origen, in his homilies on numbers, written sometime, well, actually, Origen lived somewhere between 185 to 254, just to give you a time reference there. In his homilies on numbers, referring to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, Origen writes, leaving the Jewish observance of the Sabbath, let us see how the Sabbath ought to be observed by the Christian. Now again, that relates directly to what Paul had already written in Romans 14 and Colossians 2 and Galatians chapter 4. Origen's statements confirm that historically, Christians have not understood Paul's statements in those, in, those, in those books to be an absolute prohibition to keeping the Sabbath. That's not how Christians historically understood what Paul meant. What they understood that what Paul was talking about was the Judaistic keeping of the Sabbath day. Right, the customs imposed by the law, the, 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 the Talmud, the Jerusalem and Babylonian Talmud that laid all those regulations for keeping the Sabbath day upon the people of God. The early Christians recognized that that's what Paul was writing against when he wrote the book of Galatians and Colossians and, and when he had those statements about observing one day or keeping all days the same in Romans chapter 14. This is what he had in mind. So even though they did see a difference in the way that Christians ought to observe the Sabbath, they still believed that the Sabbath ought to be observed by Christians, just in a different way. So the quotes could go on. You could, we could go to Clement of Alexandria, <clears throat> who in the late 100s wrote about sanctifying the entirety of the Lord's Day for the sake of worship. We could point to Chrysostom in the late 300s, who wrote that Christians should not do anything on the Lord's day that is unsuitable to communion with the Lord and with his church. That's the rule that Chrysostom laid down for the church where he was pastoring. Christians should not do anything on the Lord's day that obstructs communion with the Lord or with his people. See, from the very beginning, what I'm trying to point out here is that from the very beginning, believers observed Sunday as a day of rest and a day of worship. If Sunday's going to be a day of worship, what does it necessarily have to be? A day of rest. If it's going to be a peculiar, specific, special day of worship, you can't go out and, and, and mow the grass and, and go work at Walmart if you're going to maintain the sanctity of the worship time with the corporate body of Christ. You can't do both of those things at the same time. One necessarily requires the other. If it is a day of worship, then it necessarily must be a day of rest, of cessation from normal works in order to gather with the people of God. So from the very beginning, believers observed Sunday as a day of rest and worship, and, and they believed it was a day for commemorating uh, the worship of Christ in a way that was only comparable to the worship of old covenant saints on the seventh-day Sabbath. 
That's why, by the way, that's why Constantine in the early 300s, 321, if you want to know the exact date there, that's why Constantine declared Sunday to be a day in all of his empire where everyone would cease from their working and observe a religious day. So he made that a law that in the Roman Empire in 321, starting from that point forward, you could not, you could not do your normal work on the Lord's Day. Now, there were some exceptions like farmers who still had to milk their, their cows or do whatever they needed to do. Uh, Constantine gave exceptions for that. But for everyone else, they had to rest by law on the first day of the week. Eusebius, who was a church historian living at that time, um, he wrote of Constantine. He said that Constantine enjoined all the subjects of the Roman Empire to the observance of the day of the Lord as a day of rest. Why did Constantine do that? Now, you'll hear some arguments that say, well, Constantine, like Seventh-day Adventist, they will argue that Constantine made Sundays up as a day of worship for the church, but prior to that, the church wasn't worshiping on Sundays. That is absolutely a bald-faced lie. You, can, you cannot look into church history and come away with that conclusion. The reason Constantine sanctified Sunday within the Roman Empire was because Christians had already maintained the sanctity of Sundays. Constantine had become a Christian, at least ostensibly. He had proclaimed and professed faith in Christ. He was seeking to do good to the church, which at this point had been persecuted for 250 years under the Roman Empire. Here he's trying to do good and he's trying to honor Christ by honoring his church. And what does he do? He sanctifies the Lord's Day as a day of absolute cessation from work. For what purpose? So that Christians could gather together freely and spend the entire day worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ who had purchased their souls. The Christians had been struggling for almost three centuries to, to keep that day sanctified according to the Lord's will. And they weren't always able to do that because a lot of Christians were slaves, right? They couldn't just choose when they were and were not going to work. But when Constantine came to power, the Lord used Constantine to give rest to Christ's people on the Lord's day so that they could finally worship according to his will and his desire. Now, again, I bring all these quotes up simply to confirm that from the founding of the New Covenant Church, the first day of the week has not only been honored and sanctified as a special, unique day of worship, but was also viewed as the New Covenant parallel to the seventh day worship of the Sabbath in the Old Covenant. Now, so you can, you can call it New Covenant Sabbath. You can call it the Resurrected Sabbath. You can call it the Lord's Day Sabbath. You can just call it the Lord's Day. I, I really don't care. It doesn't matter. What does matter is that you recognize the day as a special day of worship and as a day that is sanctified for the honor and glory of Christ Jesus. That you recognize it as a day to gather with Christ's people in order to worship Him with pure hearts, sincere desires. That's what keeping the Sabbath is all about. In fact, I'm, I'm not going to go into this, but Mark, Mark chapter 2, verse 28, who is Lord of the Sabbath? The Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus. Did the Son of Man ever tell us that the Sabbath was abrogated? Are you sure? Did he or did he not? Yes? 
Did Jesus ever say, hey, like the temple in Jerusalem, there's a time coming and now is when the Sabbath is going to be no more. It's not going to matter if you worship on the Sabbath or on every other day because a time's coming when all days are going to be the same. Did the Son of Man ever make an argument like that? No, he didn't. Nowhere in the Gospels will you ever find Jesus hinting at the fact that the Sabbath was going to be done away with. In fact, what he says here is that the Sabbath day reflects, in measure, part of his lordship. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Therefore, keeping the Sabbath day in a way that's pleasing to him is a sign of honoring his lordship in your life. You know what most people, you know the problem that, please stay with me. I know I'm, I know I'm, going, I'm going on, but... The problem that most people have with teaching, like what I'm presenting, which is not out of step with with historical Christianity. I read to you the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith to prove that 300 years ago, Baptists said the same thing I'm saying today. All right? This is not new. What is new is this uh, divergent understanding of the Lord's Day as something distinct from a Sabbath day of worship. That is new. That's novel in church history. Okay? What most people have, the problem that most people have about sanctifying the Lord's Day really comes down to the idols of the heart. Because once you start saying that it is right and it is proper to give the Lord that which He calls you to give Him, and you find yourself refusing to give it, what does that show about the state of your heart? I mean, we don't argue about this on any other point, do we? The Lord says, you shall not commit adultery. We say, yes, Lord, if we're true Christians. And if we continue giving ourselves to pornography and we continue uh, indulging the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life and we continue to, to disdain and spurn the love of God, which is contrary to the love of the world, then we should start asking ourselves the question as to whether or not we're truly Christian. Whether or not a real radical change has actually been wrought in our heart by the Spirit of God. If you don't love God and you don't love His ways, then why do you think you're a Christian? Right? That's the kind of question we start asking ourselves. If we say, you know, I know the Lord says honor my mother and my father, but I really hate them and I don't want to honor them. Why, why, does, that, why does that thinking not carry over to the Lord's ideal design in the very beginning of creation that man would work for six days and offer a day of worship and rest unto him on another of those days. Why, why, why do we have this kind of contention over this issue? I, I believe, I firmly believe it comes down to the idols of the heart. We don't want to let go of that great idol of Americans, which is me time. My time. Really, ultimately, it's just me. I'm, I am the idol, and I serve me. And if the Lord's expectations on me on this day conflict with what I want to do, then who's going to win? I'll just come up with some other understanding of the Lord's day so that I feel free in my conscience to go do that thing, whatever it might be. I don't know if you're following me on that, but I, I, I think that for the most part, The problem that most, and I'm not saying everybody here, and I'm not accusing anyone in this room of, there's no one in my mind in this room that is the picture that I'm speaking against, okay? So I, I don't want you to feel like I'm singling you out. I'm not. 
I'm simply saying that I think a lot of the times our struggle with teachings like honoring the Lord on the Lord's Day really comes down to other things that we're honoring more than the Lord. And we need to identify those things and we need to repent of them. Right? That's what the Lord expects. When you cut out other things of your life that distract you from worshiping Christ on the Lord's Day, you are testifying that Jesus is Lord over you and not those things. I'm simply saying that the starting point in all of this needs to be that the Lord's Day is sanctified and I need to conduct myself on the Lord's Day in a way that demonstrates that reality. Right? Now the specifics, I want to reiterate this. The specifics of how you go about living on the Lord's Day are left to your individual consciences and the work of the Spirit of God on you with His Word. We are not, I want, to, I, I want to say this and reiterate it and say it again and again and again. We are not seeking to cultivate Oak Ridge Community Church's Talmud. I'm not going to lay down regulations that say you can't drive your car a certain distance on the Lord's Day. That's utterly ridiculous. I'm not going to say you can't go out for a hike on the Lord's Day. That's stupid. You can't, you can't cook a meal. I know people who say you cannot cook food on the Lord's Day without dishonoring the Lord Jesus. That is absolute, that's asinine. That is stupid. So I'm not going to come up here and say, can you, can you ride your bike on the Lord's Day without breaking the Sabbath? I, I, that's not for me to judge. That's not for me to decide. I am not the Lord over your conscience. My question back to you is, I don't know, can you do that on the Lord's Day? Can I garden? Can I, can I pull weeds in the flower bed on the Lord's Day? I don't know. Can you? Is your heart at peace with Christ? In, in doing that, does, is that a means of worshiping the Lord? And, and, and your conscience is free to enjoy Christ more fully by doing that activity? Then who am I to say, no, you can't do that. That's a violation of the Lord's Day. You can't smile on the Lord's Day, right? That's that, that example from Scotland in the, late, in the 17th century. That man was brought up on charges because he was breaking the Sabbath by smiling on the Lord's Day. That's not what we're after here. Anything that makes the Lord's Day feel like a burden should be cast aside. For the Christian, I mean. Can you hike? Can you ride your bike? Can you watch a movie? Can you have a pool party? Can you garden on the Lord's Day? Well, that's going to be for you to work out with the Lord in your conscience and for no one else to cast judgment upon you for what the Lord enables you and allows you to do as an act of worship to him on his day. Um, and, I, and I don't want you to get in a tizzy about, about this thing. Um, just seek to have your conscience informed by what God teaches you in his word. Hold fast with the true heart of faith and love to the Lord Jesus Christ and keep in step with the Holy Spirit. I guarantee you the Lord will lead you rightly. In all of those ways, all those questions that you have about how to honor the Lord on the Lord's Day, keep your mind filled with the Word of God. Hold fast with true love and faith to Jesus Christ. Walk with the Holy Spirit throughout your day, and you will find yourself doing exactly what the Lord wants you to do on His day. It's the freedom of the Christian life, right? 
How are you guys feeling? Why don't we take, can you stay with me 10 more minutes? Is that all right? Let's, 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 let's shoot for 10. You know how it always turns out. Yeah. If I say 20, it'll be 30. So. All right, so those are my three clarifications. And I know that's really its own sermon. I get that. I don't mean to weigh you down with these things. But I want to get back to John 5 next week. So let's consider this final question. What about people who have to work on Sundays? Are they sinning against God by not honoring the Lord's day? This is a good question, and it is a very understandable question when we start making connections between Sabbath worship and the Lord's Day. It's right to ask the question, is a Christian sinning against Christ if he or she has to work on the Lord's Day? I think in order to address that question, we need to begin with considering what Jesus teaches us about how we should think about work on the Lord's Day. Okay, so, so Jesus taught us how to think about work on the Sabbath day. What did Jesus teach us about work on the Sabbath day? Well, the norm is that we would rest from our normal labors on the Sabbath day. That's, that's a given. Jesus never says that's no longer applicable to, to, his, to God's image bearers. So that's a given. That's assumed. But Jesus gave us two other principles for thinking about kinds of work that have to be done on the Lord's day. And I want to just look at those briefly. First of all, Jesus told us that works of necessity do not violate the Sabbath principle. Works of necessity do not violate the principle of Sabbath worship. In Luke chapter 14, verse 5, Jesus says, Which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath? So uh, apparently and obviously for Jesus, there's a certain kind of work that is permissible on the Sabbath if that work must be done. Right? If, it's, if it's a necessary work that cannot wait and it has to get done today, otherwise harm will befall another person or honor, dishonor will be, will be cast at the Lord. Jesus says if it is a work of necessity, then you can do it and you will not be violating the Sabbath. He uses the animal here as an illustration, right? And, and in an agrarian society, your animal is the major source of your income. At least one of them. If, 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 if your animal, if your ox or your donkey falls into a pit and you just leave it there until the next day, when you go back to get that animal, it might be dead or it might be so mangled with an injury that it will never be able to work again. It's a necessary work. You've got to get that animal out of the pit. And that's not a violation of the Sabbath principle, according to Jesus. Now, we also learn a second thing from Jesus' teaching. So, so works of necessity do not violate the Sabbath principle. Secondly, Jesus also spoke about what, what have been come... Uh, Jesus also spoke about what has come to be called works of compassion or works of mercy. So works of necessity are not a violation of the Sabbath. Neither are works of mercy a violation of the Sabbath or works of compassion. In Mark chapter 3, verse 4, after healing a man with a withered hand, Jesus says to the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? 
To save life or to kill? Which one's lawful? Which one would God approve of? Doing good on the Sabbath or doing evil? Saving life, killing life. Absolutely. That's right. God is the author of life. It would absolutely not be a violation of his Sabbath if you have to do a work that preserves life. That's right. So once again, the principle is clear. It is lawful. That is, it is not breaking the principle of the Sabbath day worship when you do good on the Sabbath or when you do work that seeks to save life. And you could reverse that too and say, it is breaking the Sabbath day principle when you don't do good on the Sabbath and when you don't seek to preserve life on the Sabbath. When the Lord providentially opens the door for you to do good, to have an act of mercy and compassion poured out upon some sinner, whether believer or not, it doesn't matter if you don't take advantage of that opportunity, you are not reflecting the heart of God that's been revealed in the gospel. That is a violation of the Sabbath day. Acts of mercy, they reflect the nature of God. So if we bring those two principles together, we can then start to, to think about our question rightly. Jesus said acts of mercy and acts of necessity are not violations of the Sabbath day worship principle. Okay, then what about Christians who have to do work on Sundays? Are they dishonoring the Lord by doing that? Well, again, I think it's helpful to answer that by determining, first of all, what kind of work we're talking about. What kind of work are we talking about when we're talking about working on the Lord's Day? Some kinds of work clearly fit into the necessity mercy model, right? So you've got, for example, doctors. You've got nurses, you have first responders, firefighters, EMTs, military personnel. You even have farmers, right? Farmers have some duties that have to be done every single day. Otherwise, harm will come to their animals. All of these would be examples of works of mercy and works of necessity, clearly, right? You can't, a doctor can't say, sorry, Gramps, I, I can't take care of your heart attack right now. It's the Lord's Day, but you just hold on. I'll be back tomorrow, and we'll check in and see how you're doing. Sorry, Grandma, I hate, hate that that hip broke on you, but you just lay there. We'll, we'll be back tomorrow, and we'll come pick you up, and we'll bring you down to the hospital. Now, that, that's, that's not reflecting the character and the nature of God very well, is it? See, there are certain kinds of work that inherently are necessary and are inherently works of compassion. And therefore, to do those kinds of works on the Lord's Day are not violating the Lord's Day. However, there are other kinds of works that are not inherently, that do not inherently fit into one of these two categories. So, for example, working retail does not fit into the category of work of compassion, work of mercy, at least not inherently, or work of necessity. Uh, various kinds of service jobs, like window cleaning, uh, home cleaning services, being an electrician, being a chemist, a restaurant worker, uh, recreational work like bowling or movie theaters, stuff like that. None of that is inherently necessary and none of that is inherently a work of mercy. Now, sometimes they can become necessary. They can become works of mercy, right? Like if we have a bad snowstorm come through or we have a tornado rip through our town and power lines are down all over the place and homes are destroyed, well then guess what becomes a, a necessary and mercy-filled work? Well, the work of the electrician, right? The work of the plumber, the work of the builder. All of that becomes necessary for the well-being of human life. 
But inherently, there's nothing in the work of an electrician that requires him to schedule work on the Lord's Day as a norm, right? So, what am I arguing for? I've got two minutes left in my 10. We're getting, we're close, we're very close. What am I saying there? I'm saying that if, if we're answering this question, is it sinful for a Christian to work on the Lord's Day, to neglect the body of Christ, to neglect gathering together with the fellowship of the saints, to neglect offering a sacrifice of worship with the rest of the people of God, to neglect using your spiritual gift for the spiritual benefit of this local body? Is it sinful for you to neglect all of that in order to go to work? My answer to that is, it depends on what kind of work you're talking about. Are you a nurse? then no, it's not a violation of the Sabbath day. It's not a violation of the Lord's day. You are not dishonoring the Lord by doing that work. Are you a realtor? That could very well be a violation of the Lord's day if you choose to do that over gathering together with God's people. It could be. I don't know the circumstances. In norm, if in normal circumstances... Your work does not fit into one of these two categories, work of mercy, work of necessity, then I think I would encourage you and counsel you to, to choose for the Lord's sake not to engage in that work, okay? Now, I've got three things I need to end on, three encouragements in relation to what I just said, all right? So stick with me here. We're going to get through it quick. If you have a job that requires you to work on Sundays that does not fit into the mercy or necessity category, then let me offer three pieces of advice, okay? If you say, Brother Seth, I'm scheduled to work on Sunday, and my job, my kind of work, does not fit in the category of mercy, does not fit in the category of necessity, what should I do? Let me offer three pieces of advice. Well, actually two for you, two pieces. Number one, Make a religious request not to work on Sundays. Shocker. In other words, what I'm saying is, don't be afraid to assert the religious requirement of worshiping with God's people on the Lord's Day. Don't be afraid of asserting that. For too long, Christians have sat idly by, passively letting the world strip away from us much of the sanctity of our worship of the Lord. Well, you can be a Christian. You can, you can think that about Jesus, but you keep that over in the closet. You keep that in your bedroom. You don't, you don't let that come in and affect the work schedule. You don't let that affect the work time. That's, a, that's, a, that's an unholy division of life and worship that is absolutely unacceptable and, by the way, unconstitutionally required. You understand what I mean by that? Our constitution in this country does not back up statements like that. Separation of church and state is not separation of God and life. Or God and state, for that matter. I, I think it's time for Christians to begin taking stands like this. And allow the sanctity of the Lord's Day to be unashamedly asserted in your workplace. What are you ashamed about? What are you afraid of? You think they're going to fire you because you can't work on a Sunday? Then let them fire you. It's for the Lord's sake. Accept that. 
Yeah, and I'm not talking to you as some ignorant bum that just sits in the, in the office and studies all week, oblivious to the realities of the world around me. I had to face this multiple times in multiple jobs throughout my life. At the post office, they, they were going to require me to work on Sundays. I said, I can't do it. They said, well, I'm sorry, this is part of your position, you have to do it. And I said, then you are going to have to fire me, but I cannot work on the Lord's Day, I will not do it. You know what they did? They made an exception. You know why? Because they needed workers. And, and by the way, if everyone did that, what would they do? See, we all complain about the society not recognizing the truths and the realities of Christianity the way we want them to, but we are not bold in asserting those realities before the world. Don't be shocked when they don't care because you're showing them that you don't care. You let, you let your job strip away from you the sanctity of the Lord's Day worship? Who is ultimately Lord on that day? Jesus Christ or your boss? This is why people, and I know this, people have a problem with me. I get it. I'm too radical. I'm too, I'm too black and white in my thinking. But you know what? If we were more black and white in our thinking, people would have much more clarity about where the church stands on issues. And we wouldn't have to do all this backpedaling and apologizing for what we have to say. No, we stand unashamedly in the gospel and we proclaim it with the power of the Spirit. We just stand in the truth. This is, Jesus himself said, you're either with me or you're against me. Jesus was black and white. I'm in good company. I understand that that may, that may mean you lose your job. I get that. But you know what? When Jesus says in Luke 14, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to hate your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your wife, your children, even your own life. If you don't hate all these things and love me more than them, you cannot be my disciple. That applies to you. Not just the disciples in Luke. Count the cost, believer. Don't be afraid to take a stand for the glory of Christ. Do you think God's going to abandon you when you seek to take a stand for His name and for His glory? you think you're going to stand there and say, I want to honor the Lord on His day? you think God's going to say, oh, well, you're stepping beyond me. I'm not there to help you now. Now, that's not our God. Our God is far more kind than we imagine Him to be. He's far more gracious than we even believe Him to be. He'll be there to strengthen you. He will stand, my point is, He will stand with you as you take a stand for His glory. He will make a way. You've got to believe and stand in faith and wait for future grace. The Lord to give you grace to walk through whatever may come. He will. Gosh, I said that was going to be quick. All right. My second piece of advice for you, if your work does not fit into that category of necessity, mercy, second piece of advice, look for a new job. There may be a season when you will have to work on Sundays because you have no other choice. I understand there are times for that. I understand that. There are times when to provide for your family, you have to work on a Sunday, no other choice. I get it. But don't let that become the norm and the pattern for your life. Use that as a, as a, a temporary 
stepping stone to a better situation. Work while you can, but be active and proactive in looking for a different job that will enable you to worship with Christ's people on the Lord's Day. Okay? Those of you who do have uh, jobs that, are, uh, that, would, inc- that would be uh, in the category of works of mercy, works of necessity, let me encourage you with one final thing and then we're done. When you do have to work on a Sunday with a job of necessity or mercy, then do everything you can to sanctify that day for the Lord, even at work. So, for example, in, in some ways, you should be sanctifying the, every single day of your life for the sake of the Lord, right? Like that's, it's not as though there's only one day we're trying to sanctify for Christ. We always want to sanctify our lives and every aspect of our lives for the worship of Christ every day of the week, but especially on the Lord's Day. If you are required to work on the Lord's Day, then you need to disengage from unnecessary conversations and unnecessary distractions and sanctify those times for the sake of Christ. Uh, purposefully listen to sermons, listen to worship music, listen to audio versions of the scriptures, uh, memorize scripture, purpose to sanctify like your lunch break time for the, for the sake of prayer. Uh, make the most of the time that you have by making it as focused on the Lord as you possibly can, even if you have to work that day. Sanctify it for Christ's sake. And then, secondly, in, involved in that, be sure to participate in fellowship with other believers in different ways throughout the rest of the week. Right? So, like, for example, here at Oak Ridge Community Church, we have a men's Bible study that meets on Wednesday mornings here at 7. If you have to work on the Lord's Day... And, and you missed fellowship in the corporate assembly, then come on Wednesday and come, come fellowship with brothers. We have prayer meetings at 9 o'clock in the morning on Wednesday, at, at 6.30 on Wednesday evenings. Come to those. Come fellowship with other believers and be in prayer with them. Um, we, we have uh, Sunday evening services right now. If they continue, uh, that, that would be great. But right now you have that. If you have to work in the morning, uh, then, then purpose to come to the Sunday evening service at night. But my, my, my point in all of this is that the Lordship of Christ needs to dictate how we live our lives every single day and especially on that day that's called the Lord's Day. Let's let our lives reflect the reality that we are submitted to the Lordship of Christ in all things, especially on the day when we remember Him in a special way, Christ as our King and our Lord, right? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the time together. I thank you for the patience of your people and thank you for your word. Lord, I, I, I get so frustrated with myself and with others when we don't understand things rightly. <laughs> but I thank you for your, your great patience with us, Lord, and that one day uh, everything that we don't see clearly right now will be seen clearly. And we will rejoice and worship you together as your people in that final day of glory. Lord, we ask you to be with us. Bless us now as we sing this closing hymn. May we truly, with all of our hearts, aim to offer up to you a sacrifice of praise as one body, lifting up one voice in praise of the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask this in your name, our Lord Jesus. Amen. 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 It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. I hope every one of you can say that with a heart of joy and faith. Now, receive a benediction from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, 
the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. May he make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. May you go in the peace of the name of Jesus. Amen.